thanks, Margaret. And um, I want to say, uh, so that beautiful song that Lisa sang, I'm glad to have, it's nice to have Lisa back with us again. Good to see you here with us, Lisa. Actually, the band's doing a great job. Let's give the band a hand. They did an amazing job already. They've just been doing a great job already. Um, and you know what, George? I'm going to ask you if you'd do me a favor. If you would, would you move this light right here and just move it a little closer to the stage? I'm, I'm, I messed with it. The guys had set it up earlier. I messed with it, and now I can't see anybody to my right because I'm blinded every time I look over there. So, <laughs> now, yeah, except now I can't see Doug. <laughs> Doug can't see me. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, George. Uh, and so, uh, first of all, um, the word jetame, what does that mean? The French word? I love you. Yes, thank you. I love you. What a beautiful thing. Um, and just that such a, Peter Mayer has such a way with, with lyrics. And now I'm looking over here and I can't see over here either. I'm just looking at the light over here. All right. I can, yeah, go ahead and move it. I'm, I, that's the last I'll mess with the lights after the guys set them up. So, um, I asked Lisa, you know, I, I don't know what sound, what, what uh, sense that you got from each other. Maybe you can just move it even closer to the stage because now, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're watching online going like, what are they doing? What's going on? Um, I was asking Lisa her favorite smell. I love this. I would love to see this as a scratch and sniff. Her favorite smell is baby head. Right? I mean, it's a smell, right? We all know that smell. Most of us, I mean, we know that. Um, those are the, are, are the kids in here that you were, the, you were the, the victim of that wonderful scent for years. We were that scent to our parents at one time or another. It's just an amazing sort of smell, baby head smell. So, and, and yet it's not been bottled anywhere. You know, so you, can't, you can't purchase that. What would that be if we could actually purchase it and put it on ourselves? Wouldn't everyone just smile when we came around? Wouldn't they just kind of want to go, ooh, you're doing all right today? I mean, wouldn't they just be that way with us if we could put it on? Um, so I'm thinking about this day, and I'm thinking about Father's Day. And as I mentioned, you know, we, we bring a lot of different agenda to it, a lot of different default ideas to it. A lot of it's positive, a lot of these wonderful memories, that first song that uh, 22 pilots, uh, 20, 22 pilots? That they, that they uh, tw 21 pilots, thank you. Yeah. I added a new pilot to them. But um, they, you know, that song about memories, and we wish we could go back to our memories, and, and the memories just don't seem to be there, and yet the way we remember them has changed as well. I mean, all of this in the midst of where we are now in a shifting landscape of reality, right? We are. We're in the midst of a really seismic kind of shift in our, in our, in our geographic landscape, in our environmental landscape, in our emotional and social landscape. In our church, ecclesial landscape, there's a lot of seismic shifts coming on. And is that me, staticky, coming up over that? Yep. Yep. Hello. <laughs> all right. Well, now we sound better. Should I repeat all the jokes and stuff I did at the beginning? So you heard them. Okay. Keep keep going. Yeah. Um, we're in the midst of this seismic, this seismic shift, and so how does the sense of smell, how does that affect it? How, how, do our, how does being patient, uh, present to our senses in general help us embody a spirituality for change and adapt to the reality that we're in, which is part of spiritual practice as well? Uh, not only adjusting and dealing with life ourselves and finding comfort in the smells that are familiar to us, but also 
how does that speak to who we might become for others? Which was why I loved the poem that Peter recited. And he was the first person I ever heard the poem from years ago by E.E. E. Cummings. And it's just such a beautiful, we're going to come back to it at the end, but it, the idea of what can change the world around us with a simple gesture. Uh, uh, daffodils by, in themselves don't smell all that good, I suppose. If you ever smell the daffodil, it kind of has a smell of dirt and manure. Um, it doesn't really have a strong sweet smell like maybe perfume or, I mean, like maybe chrysanthemum or maybe a rose. It has an earthier smell, and, um, which again, is that a bad smell or a good smell? So we'll get to that. So uh, there, was a, there was a fellow who was kind of poor and lived in the village, and he, was, he was, didn't have a whole lot, but what he loved to do was to visit the town uh, shops, you know, he would visit the merchants of different types and he would enjoy looking through the window at things that he might wish he had or at least like, like the idea of having, but even more than that, just enjoying the different things he would see. And one of those things that he liked to visit was the baker because the baker was just filled with aromas. The bakery had all these different aromas, meat pies, uh, cinnamon rolls, uh, fresh baked bread. And so he would walk past this bakery. I got to thinking about this. This is an old story, but I imagined what would happen if we did this, say, for example, the, near, the bakery in your neighborhood um, or on Main Street or down by me, Blue Bonnet Bakery over in my neighborhood. And he would just walk by the bakery and he would stick his head in and he would take a deep inhale. And if he was really adventurous, he would walk closer to the counters and inhale, take an inhale from each of the different items. And then he would just sit back with a contentment and a smile on his face. And then he would leave. And he did this almost every day. Now, the baker himself was a pretty hardworking man and a bit greedy and a bit demanding, uh, maybe a little on the soup Nazi. If you watched uh, Seinfeld and you remember the soup, soup, soup Nazi, maybe a little bit on that side. You know, you did everything the right way, but the one thing you didn't do is come into my shop, look at everything, touch things, or sniff things, and then leave as if you're not planning on buying something. Well, after doing this for some time, the baker showed up at this man's little hut and banged on the door, and he came to the door, and he says, I demand payment. And the guy says, payment for what? He says, every day, the baker says, you come to my shop, you smell my goods, and every day you take up space smelling them, and you leave with this contented smile. Clearly, I have provided you a service. You need to pay for it. And the guy was, he said, well, number one, I don't have hardly anything to pay. And number two, that's ridiculous. Well, it went back and forth until finally the baker went to the judge. Now, the judge happened to be Nasruddin Hoja, the Middle Eastern wise fool that I've often talked about in here. And, and being a person who often could see the wisdom in the most ridiculous scenarios, he invited the both of them to come before him, and his decision would be final. And so the baker showed up, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the man showed up. The baker complained. He presented his case and said, you know, clearly he's getting a service from me. Should not he pay for this service? Well, Nasruddin thought about it, and it made good sense. I mean, after a while, you know, I mean, in our day and age, you've got to pay for all sorts of things, right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Seems like we have to pay for things. Well, back then, it was no less so. If he's receiving a beneficial kind of service from sniffing the bakery, well, then, yes, you should pay something. And the man was beside himself. He said, but, Your Honor... He said, pay something? And Nazaruddin said, that's right. Clearly he provided you a service. Clearly you should pay. Go home and get me whatever coins you have. 
And so the man went home, did as the judge had said, as Nazarene had said, and he came back with a little bag of coins. And the judge said, here, let me have them. And the judge took the bag of coins, and he looked at the beggar, and, and he said, and he shook the coins. He shook them really hard, and he said, so you, you think you need payment for this, right? And he said, well, yes, of course I do. And he said, well, you hear this. These are coins. And he said, yes, I hear them. And he says, and you like the sound, right? Because you like the idea of the coins. He says, yes. He said, good then. There's your payment. <laughs> and he handed the coins back to Nezrudin, and he sent them both on their way. Now, <laughs> so it's an old story told all throughout the Middle East. Some of you may have heard the story, The Theft of Smell. And yet I thought about it because I thought, what would that be like if you literally were to go into various shops? You're just walking through the floral shop. I just love the scent of the flowers. You're walking through the bakery. I just love the smell of that cinnamon roll. Oh, I don't, I don't plan on buying anything. No, I'm not going to buy anything. But I just love the smell. And most people, in reality, would just be fine. Well, I mean, I could say the same for you. You come and you enjoy a message and you love the music. And have you all paid anything for that yet? I could do a whole sermon on stewardship right now, couldn't I? I could just like the theft of smell and the, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's this interesting idea of how we, how we uh, compensate for things. And yet the world, just as the Magical World song was saying, the world is filled with delights, right and left. And they're for sharing. They're just present all the time. And what we forget is, is because we are so oriented around ego, and then as, as, as the first song said, which was like, we find ourselves in this stressful reality of we got to make money. It's no longer about being a kid. It's no longer about being a child at heart. It's no longer about enjoying all the strange and fun and interesting things there are in the world. It's about we got to make ends meet. We got, and then we get caught up with everybody else and how they're making ends meet, and we're thinking, well, that, then we got to make ends meet as well as they do, or they got stuff we want, or I see stuff we want. And so it's just this never-ending cycle that gets us off track of our original creation, our original idea of being present to one another, because it then becomes part of how we define one another as well. The bias of what we need begins to default to the bias of who we meet, and to the bias of who we accept, and the bias of who we don't accept. And it, and it all stems back from this loss of sort of our childhood, our, our difficulty remembering what it's like to appreciate things. So here's the first thing I want to say. My lesson one, point one, with regard to the smell, this idea of smelling. And point one is, in reality, there are no such thing as bad smells and good smells. And you're going to go, no, that's not true. Well, here's an interesting idea. If you weren't always associating pine smell with what the school used to clean up vomit in the hallway, <laughs> would you think about that pine smell in the same way? My, a friend uh, of mine uh, had been talking about when she decided she wanted to take a paper narcissus. Y'all smelled paper narcissus before? They're kind of an interesting smell. It's not a really sweet, sweet smell. It's kind of a pungent, maybe, smell. And it's interesting, too, trying to describe smells. That's always fun. Did you ever notice that when you try to define smells, you're always using other words than really ar aromatic words sometimes? Because you really don't know how to describe what a thing smells like. So you say it sort of smells like this other thing. 
But so, so Narcissus, paper Narcissus has this kind of smell. Well, she put one in her daughter's house and began decorating it up one day when she was gone. And, and when her daughter came back, she said, it smells like a mouse or something has died in my house. And she started looking all over the place for this dead mouse that she thought had died in the place. And, she's, and she, when she called her mom, she said, were you over here earlier? And she said, well, yeah. And she said, well, did you notice the smell of a mouse, this, maybe this dead mouse? And is there, is there, did you put a trap out somewhere? So she couldn't get rid of this idea that there was this smell of a dead mouse. Well, when, she, when her mom came back over and pointed out that it was, in fact, this narcissus that was in the corner by the window, it suddenly changed everything. Now she realized, oh, that's the smell of Narcissus. And she began to appreciate that because it wasn't a dead mouse. <laughs> we bring defaults to everything we do. We bring prior unawareness, prior judgments, prior default kinds of opinions to everything we do. But in reality, smells are not automatically. Now, taste buds are automatically. They have some defined automatic sort of fail-safes about what tastes right or not because there's an automatic evolutionary development in our taste buds for, you know, th eating things that might poison us, for example. And so we have sort of reactions to certain things. But, but smell doesn't have that bias. Do you know where that bias comes from? It comes from culture. It comes from socialization. It comes from the various systems and contexts we find ourselves in. And so we can have all sorts of different opinions. I was up, at, when we were up in Michigan, we went to this wonderful gift shop, and there were these wonderful aromas, aromatic little canisters, and they said um, they'd have things like sleepful rest. And then another one would have headache help. And so we picked up the headache. Linda had a headache, and she was like, okay, I'll smell this. And so she smelled it, and it was peppermint. It was pretty strong. And she thought, well, that's kind of refreshing. That's kind of kind of awakening kind of sense. I guess that helps headaches a little bit. She put it back down. We hadn't walked more than a few feet away when someone else came up and said, oh, my God, what is that smell? And she took a deep whiff, and she said, I have a headache now. Thank you very much, and set it back down. The, the smell of peppermint had the opposite effect on her. Now, you think of lavender as helping for what? Sleep. But in Brazil... It's for energizing. Isn't that interesting? Some people love the smell of gas. Can you imagine? Maybe so. Maybe you do. I don't. I personally, I find it very difficult. Certain aromas, certain smells, certain chemical smells in particular, I, ha I get headaches around them. And so even like heavy hairspray, things like that, or heavy cologne or perfume, I have to kind of distance myself. I have a hypersensitive olfactory whatever. But... Different people have different sensations with these smells. Peppermint, lavender, gas. When I went to the winery, we love playing sommeliers. So we picked up the wine, stirred it around, sniffed it, read the little description. Chewy, us, oh, an aftertaste of cigars. Earthy, a sweet vanilla flavor. I tasted it, and I said, I taste lemon. I taste lemon. And I looked at the woman when she came around, the, the, ho the hostess, and I said, yeah, I taste lemon. Is there lemon in this? And she was like, D did you read the description? And I said, yeah, but I taste lemon. And she said, well, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, if you're a good wine seller, you're not going to tell the person they don't smell what they smell or taste what they taste. And so uh, I was like, all right, I taste lemon. I don't taste any of this stuff. 
We have very particular taste buds that are conditioned because of who we are and because of our context and our upbringing. But here's the spiritual application of that. That translates to everything about us, right? What would happen if we learned to take more time to explore without judgment, to explore our senses and our taste, for example, and our smell, for example, without prejudice or without biases or, without our, or even questioning our default, what might happen? So point one is, um, in reality, there are no good or bad smells. And in fact, it kind of goes back to the other thing, which was what we said about sight and taste and everything else. We don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. We don't smell the world as it is. We smell it as we are. That's a challenge for us. So, second point two, how are you embodying your spirituality? How are you embodying your aromatic landscape? Are you doing it intentionally? Once I got started this last week thinking about smell, it was just like everything else. When it was sight, I couldn't help but see everything I was looking at. When it was taste, I couldn't help but sit there and savor the taste on the back of the tongue where, the mo where most of the taste buds are and let it sit there for a while trying to figure out what is it that I'm actually tasting. And now with its smell, I get in my car and I'm going like, what's that smell? And then I'll get into Linda's car and I'll say, well, what's that smell? And Linda will say, well, it's in your car, it's you. <laughs> and I said, well, your car smells a lot better. So, uh, I mean... But it's not just me. It's also everything I ate that week and that I threw away into the trash, and then it's everything else that's gathered in that car over the last few weeks, right? So it is me, in fact, but, and it is her in hers, right? But I'm more mindful. How are you embodying your sense of smell? It's really all this practice is about is challenging that. And then this idea of the rock. When the rock made that statement... Do you smell what the rock is cooking? And everybody jumped on it. And he was making it as a joke because just before he went out into the ring, he and some of the uh, folks that were the, the planners and the, and the uh, admin, admin, I mean the event people, they were all just making jokes and they were asking him what he's cooking, you know, what he enjoys because he actually enjoys cooking. And so they said, so do you smell what the, what the rock is cooking? And, and that's what he started joking back with them. And then when they, when they asked him exactly what that was, he finally said to people a few years ago, he said, well, what the rock was cooking at the time was croqueum boucher. And then he said, you'll have to go look it up. And it's simply a pile of French pastry puffs that are soaked in caramel and cinnamon and create this delicious sort of stacked, upside-down, cone-shaped dessert. He's just cooking dessert. But that's not what we took away from it, right? And so it became this whole cultural theme and a, a, a sort of a cultural um, meme, if you will, for us. So the third point, then, that I want to suggest is noticing the filters, the biases that we bring, and that we filter the world with, when we began to notice them, we began to change how we relate to things. Paul is dealing with, the four, in the, in the, um, around 40 AD, he's dealing with the earliest communities of the anointed, right? They're scattered. They're in Asia Minor. They're all over what used to be Jerusalem, and they're scattering. He's dealing with this early community of followers, mostly Jewish, but now Gentiles as well. This is difficult. They don't practice the same. 
They don't eat the same. They don't necessarily look the same. And Paul is talking to this community at Philippi and saying, follow our example. It's always been about inclusion. It's always been about acceptance. It's always been about being generous over judgmental. It's always been about grace over defiance, honoring one another. And when he says the word meditate, what do you think? What comes to mind? Think, right? We just default to think. It's not what meditation is. Meditation is actually the opposite of thinking. Meditation is getting your thinking out of the way. So you can actually be present. So if we re reapply these words and instead of saying, go meditate on this, because as I can't remember now who the, it's one of my former quotes were, we don't think the way the world is. We tend to think with our own biases. And the hardest thing that we have to face in the world is the ability to unlearn so that we can relearn. I think that was Alvin Toffler that said that. That's right. That we, that's going to be the, the, the real test of what the future looks like. It won't just be stupidity. It's going to be the inability to unlearn so that we can relearn. In other words, the inability to adapt, the inability to be present to what's happening. Meditate on these things doesn't mean think about them. It means get yourself out of the way so you can be present to the generosity that's invited in the moment. Doesn't matter where you're with or who you're with, what they think or how they are, if we can get ourselves out of the way, we can help them get out of their way. And they can begin to smell, if you will, metaphorically, what's really at the ground of all of our being. Point number three, get out of the way and be present to what else is there when you're smelling things <laughs> this week. Last week it was tasting, or two weeks ago it was tasting. This week it's smelling. And play with it metaphorically. If you imagine yourself like the clown on the street, you're offering daisies. You're offering peace offerings which say, let's pay attention together to what's going on right now. This is what Paul was saying to church at Philippi. Pay attention. You guys can come on up right now. I forgot to tell you to do that. So one last time just to read this poem because it's such a beautiful poem as they get ready to play. One winter afternoon at the magical hour of when is becomes if. How does that happen? How does is become if? Got to get out of the way, right? Pay attention. A bespangled clown was standing on 8th Street, handed me a flower. Nobody, it's safe to say, observed him but myself. I guess everybody else was preoccupied, right? Nobody noticed. And why? Because without any doubt, he was whatever first and last, what most people fear most. A mystery for which I have no word except alive. That is completely alert and miraculously whole with not merely a mind and a heart, but unquestionably a soul. I love that idea. What is it to be present to soul if it's not simply to be present to the moments we're in with others? Really present, and less ourselves, we experience this sense of soul and sacredness. But by no means funerally hilarious or otherwise democratic, but essentially poetical or ethereal serious, ethereally serious. A fine and not coarse clown, not a mob, but a person. 
And while never saying a word who was anything but dumb, since the silence of him self-saying like a bird. Most people have been heard screaming for international measures that render hell rational. I think that's kind of where we are today. But I think, heaven, that somebody's crazy enough to hand me a daisy. <laughs> 